and welcome to the Doctor Who show, rounding out the month of September. I'm Dave. I'm Rob. And thank you for joining us once again. We've got a lot to chat about and a new type of topic to do this month, Rob. So, uh, yeah, stick around. We've got a lot to say. Yes, Dave, this is this is going to be a weird one, listeners, because although so many other Doctor Who podcasts out there do make uh, reviewing single stories their forte, we don't tend to do that, Dave. So this is actually new territory for us. It is. So we're going to do a deep dive, not really a review, certainly I haven't structured it as a review, but we're going to do a deep dive this time, not in a doctor or a season or a monster or an era or anything like that. We're going to deep dive into a single story, but we'll talk more about that later. But should we tell the listeners what the story is, Rob? Oh, I think we can, Dave, because we've we've asked for their thoughts on uh, Twitter and Facebook and such, so some of them will know it at least. It is. So we will be talking in depth as our main topic on The Keeper of Traken. Yes, really looking forward to that chat. Uh, yes, so look, good to be back, Rob, after my uh, month off where Richard kept the seat warm for me and I enjoyed listening to that discussion just as a, a listener. It's always nice to get to do the podcast from the other side of the the microphone, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Look, welcome back to the monthly format, Dave. But of course, you did pop back momentarily to do our uh, special Terence Dix episode. Yeah, so we should mention that because, of course, since the last monthly episode, I think everyone in Doctor Who fandom is, is aware that Terence Dix did pass away. And it, it has been a seismic event in, in Doctor Who fandom, particularly for fans of our generation, I think. Oh, yeah, just uh, enormous. And everyone, you know, I don't want it to sound cliche, but everyone says the same thing because it's true. You know, he he fostered my love of reading. He he taught me to read, some people say, Uh, you know, and and all this sort of stuff. It's just, oh, it's just so sad. It is very sad. There are few people in the world, and, and I think including in the world of Doctor Who specifically, whose passing can engender such consistent and overarching uh, sadness from so many people without any caveats, without any sort of anybody out there giving an alternate view or anyone saying, yeah, I didn't really care for him. Like there's just a consistent enduring sadness across fandom, which is the mark of a really, really great and, and, and lovely and wonderful man. And we celebrated for those who aren't aware by re-releasing the Terence Dix discussion of an earlier episode from uh, earlier this year with a, with a top, new top and tail from us, Rob. Yeah, we did. And I've got to say, Dave, it's it's three weeks or so since we did that. I feel maybe sadder and more blown away now than I did then. I don't know whether it was adrenaline. Maybe adrenaline's not the right word, but we just sort of threw ourselves into making that program and, and we talked about him and such. But I, I possibly feel sadder now. <laughs> it has been a very consistent, uh, drawn-out period where there's been a chance to read people's thoughts as they put them together and put them out or or listen to podcasts, some of which have done what we did and put out a bit of a special episode quickly. Others waited until their next scheduled episode and and then spoke about it then. So there, there has been this sort of long process where it really has sunk in just what a big loss this has been for fandom. Oh, immensely, immensely. Just, as I say, blown away. You know, I guess it had to happen someday, but it's still not a fun day when it happens. No, but... It has been very pleasant to read the various comments that have been made back to us following that special. People who've reached out to us on social media particularly and, and just shared their views or shared our views. And it's it's been a lovely experience, albeit one very, very much tinged in sadness. 
Yeah, I guess with the way fandom, Doctor Who fandom, all genre fandoms are so split these days, you know, they put out a new logo, 50% love it, 50% hate it. We get a female Doctor, 50% love it, 50% hate it. Terrence Dix dies, 100% of people, as you say, are just saddened. Exactly, exactly. So that's probably, I guess, the, the, the biggest news topic, and it's one that we covered in depth in a special. Life goes on, Doctor Who goes on, the podcast goes on. Rob, do you want to lead us off then with our first news item for this month? Yeah, of course. Uh, Christopher Eccleston, as many people know, has put out his uh, autobiography, or his memoirs, whatever you might like to call them. And naturally, the uh, the tabloid newspapers are pulling out all the salacious bits and, and all the bits they think will be uh, good clickbait. Luckily for us, though, that does include uh, his time on Doctor Who and his thoughts about Doctor Who, which is obviously what uh, we'd probably be most interested in in a Christopher Eccleston biography, or autobiography, I should say. And uh, a couple of pieces have popped up in The Sun that I've taken notice of. One is where he talks about feeling bitter and betrayed on Doctor Who and, and, and felt that he was plunging down a well. But I think the happier part of this article, because I think we all know he didn't have a good time on the show and that's why he left, but he says uh, he now likes going to conventions. And originally he'd uh, sort of pulled away from them, didn't want to make any money from them. He wanted to just be an actor. But now he feels meeting fans is therapeutic. And uh, there's a quote here. What I've actually found is some amazing people who want to talk to me, not only about Doctor Who, but... Our friends in the North, 28 Days Later, The Second Coming, Shallow Grave, Cracker, and so on. People bring memorabilia from across my whole career, which makes me feel good about my work and also about myself. It has healed something in me. Forget producers, forget politics. Here are real people who have seen me do my stuff and want to shake my hand. And I feel really good reading that, Dave. I think he's in a really good place with Doctor Who, but also maybe more broadly his career and and such in general. It is. There's a couple of things that really struck me about all, all of this that's been going on. The first of which is, I don't think I really understood how big an act and how big a name he is in the UK. I don't think he is that big a, a celebrity or that big a known quantity in Australia, but there's been much wider coverage and much more knowledge of his career, I think, in the UK than I expected. Yeah, absolutely. And just to pick up on this second piece, also from The Sun, they've picked out a a bit where he talks about his time on Heroes. Now, I watched Heroes. Did you watch Heroes, Dave? I I didn't, know. I'd completely forgotten he was on it. I mean, this is over a decade ago now. It's post-Doctor Who, and uh, he had a role in the show, and he talks about when he was going to a costume fitting and stuff. They were trying to get him to wear a scarf, and he suddenly twigged that they were trying to make a Doctor Who sort of analogy with him on the show and he wasn't he says he put his foot down and wasn't having it although they did slip in a fantastic into a script later on and he didn't pick up on that until later and then realized oh geez that was a doctor who reference (laughs) um and and he talks about you know that that sort of thing as well you know eccleston's not a guy uh who's backwards about coming forwards it seems if something turns up that he doesn't like he 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 really says his his mind on it and uh and here he talks about that experience on heroes and it doesn't sound like that was a fun time either in particular so again i'm glad to have read that other article about him saying he loves going to conventions and the fans are sort of helping him convalesce after such a traumatic time i guess yeah absolutely and he's also been very open with some health issues and mental health issues that he went through yeah earlier in his career now i don't want to dive into those because i i don't have the expertise and the correct sort of language and and terminology to really dive into that. Other than to say, I think it's positive that 
somebody who was seen as a very strong male role model, you know, very much a man's man, you know, mm. brutal and, and frank and honest and, and, and strong, you know, all those cliched masculine terms to, to be honest about uh, these sort of conditions. And if you're interested in that, listeners, are, uh, I invite you to just uh, have a look on the internet and have a, uh, a look at articles written and discussed in, in far better terms than I think I could. Yeah, indeed. And if you really like the sound of it, do grab the memoir. It's called I Love the Bones of You. Yes, I'll certainly be grabbing it at some point. Hmm. Uh, Another piece of sad news, I guess, but unusual news, Rob, Hmm. and that is uh, the death of a man by the name of David Boyle in the UK, who may not be a name instantly familiar to fans, but his work, I suspect, is he's the man who was responsible for many years for the Blackpool Doctor Who exhibition and indeed the Langollen Doctor Who exhibition. Uh, now, this article says that's what he's mostly known for, but I would actually argue that what he's mostly known for is as the guy who founded and ran Daypol for many, many years. Yeah, in, in, indeed. In fact, that uh, second place you mentioned, which I won't try to pronounce because that's, that's in Wales, isn't it? Is Lang- Langochlan? Lang- Clang- Langollen. Yes. Yes. That's where uh, the Daypole factory was, wasn't it? I believe so, yes. Yeah, yes. so he had the sort of exhibition alongside the uh, the factory, I think, over, over there. And this, of course, is all pre-Doctor Who experience people. This is... This is like, you know, in the in the 80s and such, uh, you'll hear fans talk about going down to see the Blackpool exhibition and things like that. It's strange how fans can become so well-known like this over, over a period of time, but the, the effort he put in to keep the show going, you have all these fans in the UK through the wilderness years in particular who, who all do their part and they all do little bits and it, it just kept the show going and I, I think that's remarkable and I, I'm I'm pleased we're sort of noting him here on, on the episode today. Yes, I think my view was he did exhibitions before they were trendy. Yes. He did, he did model figures before they were sexy and everybody collected them. So he really did keep these things going in a time when it wasn't easy and I suspect wasn't as profitable as it is today. And so, yeah, worth mentioning him on, on, on his passing. Yeah, Wale. Uh, moving along, this is one that probably everyone knows by now, but we haven't mentioned it on one of our monthly shows, so let's mention it now, Dave. And that's the next UK Blu-ray release will be Sylvester McCoy and Sophie Aldred in season 26. Yes, exciting news. I think news that will not surprise anybody. I think anybody who was speculating on what seasons were going to come out pretty much knew that season 26 was going to be up there. It's a very well-regarded season and a season with stories you can do a lot with on the DVD range. Mm. I, I want to say, Rob, this is the first time that the announcement trailer for a box set has actually kind of got me excited. Um, the other ones I know people have been big fans of and, and so they've worked for some. You know, there was a there was Colin Baker reenacting parts of the trials when that season 23 and all those. And they were nice, but... This one, which was all centred around Ace as an adult now in London and what she's doing, that really just hit my nostalgia bone absolutely square on. And seeing Sophie Aldred again, who is one of the first real A-list Doctor Who people that I really actually met properly and, and got to spend real time with her when we ran a convention with her in 1997 down in Melbourne. You know, this, this just all, it, it just really hit me in the right way. I thought it was a lovely little trailer. Yeah, look, Dave, I, I hear because the Sylvester McCoy era came along at a certain time for me in my life. I'm a few years ahead of you, but for both of us, I think we were watching it 
at the same time at a similar age. And of course, you're a big fan of the NAs where Ace played a big part. Yes. And, and you know, and obviously you met her and, and had a convention with her and so on that you were running. I get all of that. First of all, I'll say I like the trailer. Don't get me wrong. But the reaction to it online was a wee bit over the top and I found myself disagreeing with it to some degree. <laughs> Can I talk about that? Yeah, no, let's let's do that. Okay, because this trailer, I watched it before I'd seen a lot of the hype online and I thought, oh, that's nice. They've got Sophie Aldred looking out of a window, doing a bit of a narration, there's some music, and it's basically a clip show. All the old clips that we've seen before and then, you know, a shadow appears at the door with an umbrella, and it's it's obviously not Sylvester, but we, we, we believe it's Sylvester. We're meant to believe it's Sylvester. And I thought, yeah, that was kind of cute. You know, a bit twee, but a bit cute. I get online, and people say, oh my god, Pete McTie has scripted the most amazing comeback for Sophie and <laughs> Sylvester. If this is doesn't become a series soon, I don't know what's wrong with the world. And I'm like... Jeez, did we watch the same thing? Like, I, I thought it was just a bunch of clips with a bit of a voiceover and Sophie staring out a window, you know? It wasn't that profound. It was nice. I Again, I liked it. But was it that profound? I didn't think so. No, I... I... Look, I wasn't that excited, but I'm not the most excitable of people, as you know, Rob. But, yes. <laughs> but I also did sort of have that moment of... Gee, I'd love to see Sophie Aldrin as Ace again in some sort of series or, you know, in a guest role in, in, in the show now. And I, I just think it's because her character was so different and so interesting. And, and really, you know, this is not a new observation, changed the template of the companion in such a way that really did move us from the classic series and set us up for the companions of the new series. And and she just looked so stunning. Mm. And it was just—it was just so easy to imagine her doing it in a way that you look at some companions where they come back or and sort of you know refill the role forty or fifty years later. You go look, it's lovely they're doing it, but they're, they're nothing like what they you know you know. Let's not pretend they could just step back in their role. Like, oh my god, Jamie's barely changed. Like, I love Fraser Hines, but no, yeah. you know, I, I don't. I don't have the desire to see Fraser Hines as Jamie again. Whereas yeah. this one, it just felt so right. I thought, yeah, you could do it in in, in the way that. We had Liz Sladen step back in so wonderfully in the series and then mm. her own series. Uh, Katie Manning, I don't think, was as effective as Liz Sladen, but again, when she turned up in the Sarah Jane Adventures, that she, she f- stepped into that role very well. And I think Sophie Eldred could do the same, and I think, I think it's fair enough to be excited. And look, maybe as well, to go back to our opening point, in a, in a, in a, in a week sort of where Terrence Sticks had passed away, I think it was something that fans could be very happy and positive about. And so I think a lot of people did embrace that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. And and on Sophie, I think I think looks has a, a lot to do with it. You know, she's maintained, although she's grown up and must be in her 50s, I don't know, mid-50s by now. Yeah, yeah, she, yeah. She's maintained a bit of a girlish look um, and just has that feisty companion look to her still you know and yeah and as as you say some of the companions lose that liz sladen didn't lose it she still looked a bit like sarah jane whereas katie manning has has aged you know and i i get that she doesn't look quite as joe grantish as as uh liz sladen still looked sarah jane-ish if i can put it that way mm-hmm. but um yeah. but sophie's kept the the look although she's matured and the voice she still does the voice really well yes yeah that's a big part of it too Speaking of Blu-rays, mm. we have a update for our Australian listeners. A lot of Australian listeners have noticed, and certainly 
we and our friends have noticed that just as we were expecting the season 10 Blu-ray to come out and we were all waiting to be able to pre-order it and everything, it suddenly disappeared from all the commercial websites and the Mm. mail order websites and we all wondered what's going on. What we discovered is that the company with the contract to release BBC DVDs and Blu-rays in Australia has actually switched. It's gone over from Roadshow, who've had it for decades, to uh, Universal Sony Pictures Home Entertainment Australia. Yeah, that's right. Because uh, as you say, uh, these things were available briefly for pre-order, but then quickly disappeared. So they were never released here, folks. So we're currently behind. How many are we behind now? We're behind the uh, the season 10, the season 23. We're, we're one behind now. We're about to become two behind. Right. Okay. And, uh, and, and soon, I guess, if Universal doesn't get its act into gear, we'll be uh, a third one behind with the Sylvester one we were just talking about. That's right. So there's been a big delay as one company has stopped making Doctor Who Blu-rays and another needs to actually get up and start making that process. But we have confirmed, and thanks to our friends at 42 to Doomsday who flicked this through to me last night, uh, Season 10 will come out in Australia on the 13th of November. Season 23 will come out on the 4th of December. And we will get uh, the others fairly soon in the new year. And the packaging will be the same format and design as the Season 18 Blu-ray release in Australia. Which is slightly controversial because it is slightly different to the UK packaging. It it is. I I must admit, I don't care that much. I mean, they'll sit on my shelves and I'll admire them and my cat will admire them. But beyond that, I don't think anyone's really going to be judging me by my Doctor Who DVDs (laughs) or Blu-rays. I I know that people who, who take these collections very seriously are going to, I think, stick to or go back to the UK releases for that consistency of packaging. But look, I'm just very happy that they're finally going to be out. I've been waiting for season 10 for months. Yeah, exactly. And for reference, when we're talking about the packaging, folks, think of the UK packaging minus the little boxy area that the disc trays sit in. So the, the you have a front and a back and they open up to reveal the trays, but the trays aren't protected along the, the top, the side, or the bottom in their own little box. It's uh, Unless you use the box that they come in, of course, uh, at the shop. Uh, yeah, there's a little sort of slip cover sort of box. Thing, a like, slip cover, not, not, yeah. Very, very thin, very, very almost papery, yeah. Yeah, so they still look pretty good, and they still look, I don't know, 90% of what the UK ones look like. They're certainly not like the US releases that are in just regular Blu-ray boxes. Yeah. They're, they're still fairly special, but uh, they're, just they're a little just different. Not as- yeah, they're just not as solid. Yeah, I would say that too. Uh, but yeah, no, good news, they'll be coming out, so hopefully we can order those very soon. Yeah, absolutely. Shall we move into the mini topics for this episode, Dave? Yes, we shall, and uh, two of which relate to my recent trip overseas. Very good. So I'll, I'll start off with one of them, and I, I spent the majority of my time overseas in Italy. I did spend a bit of time in, in London, and that was lovely, and as a... London's a lovely city to be in. I've got you know many great friends and I had many great times and um, some experiences and all the rest of it. But as a Doctor Who fan as well, you walk around London and just everything's a Doctor Who reference. Mm. You know, there, there's the bridge from Dark Invasion of Earth. There's the post office tower. Uh, there's where the Scarrison came up in the, the Zygons. There's the the uh, what's it called? The spinning wheel from Rose. Um, yeah, London Eye. The London Eye. You know, like and then you. I'll tell you got, a funny story, Dave. A, a PR company I once worked for. It's London Office was in the uh, the same office that uh, was used in the invasion. Oh, wow. <laughs> How weird is that? And I always had these fantasies that I'd get sent over to the London office for some 
reason and i'd get to like actually work inside that office building never actually happened but yeah there you go and then you catch the london underground and you know there's marble art station so that's a mysterious planet reference and then there's covent garden stations so that's a web of fear reference or even just you know the gloucester road you go oh that's where rumpole used to catch the train every morning to go to work at the temple <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know it's, it's just so wonderful but but most of my time was in italy and i went to rome for the first time and you know i, I went to rome on its own merits not just because it was in a doctor who story that i i'm a fan of but it did occur to me that i have now visited a number of the locations of doctor who historicals which is you and long-time listeners will know is a particular favorite era and genre of mine in the show mm. and i actually made a list of all the historical stories and worked out which uh, locations or settings i'd been to now of the classic historicals i've been to seven of the 11 of the wow. uh, the settings including a couple of the 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 tougher ones i think this, the the ancient port of jaffa from the crusades would be probably the rarest one i've been to and you know i've done cornwall and culloden and paris and now rome i think that asia minor and the location of troy will be the hardest one to tick off yes although although again what what do you tick off for marco polo like if we just go to beijing does that does that count because you know the last episode set in peking or do you have to start on the plain of Pamir and work your way through lop and shang two <laughs> <laughs> all the way to peking uh, i'm not sure but a, a couple of locations or settings i'm hoping to get to next year so i might take off a couple more but of course i did go to pompeii which is the unambiguous setting of the Doctor Who story, The Fires of Pompeii. That's right. Uh, which I did go and watch after visiting, uh, which yeah. I hadn't seen for a long time. And and it's fascinating to sort of look at the bits that they've done correctly and the bits that they've used a bit of poetic license. Um, fascinating that the Doctor quotes the date that they're there and says, oh, we're only a couple of days away from the date of the eruption. Uh, research since that episode was made actually suggests that that date was wrong. It occurred in October rather than August because they have just this year found a coin that could only have been minted after august of that year so therefore the the eruption must have been later and so the the alternate date people have suggested of october now seems a more likely date so just interesting that uh that all happened but yeah it, it's fascinating doctor who has long inspired my love of history and i'm getting to see some of these settings for myself yeah it's wonderful i mean doctor who inspires so much in people whether it's that love of history love of science, uh, love of writing or being on TV, you know. It, it's inspired yeah. fans in so many different ways. It's, it's really great. It, it is, but I did sort of, you know, walk around the Colosseum and some of the ruins in Rome, and, and I was thinking of moments from the Romans, which is a story I love. So yeah. there you go. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, moving quickly on to my mini topic for this episode, Dave, we've recently had the Emmys and there was all the, the fun and frolics of uh, an Emmys, but I was particularly taken with Phoebe Waller-Bridge uh, winning a, a bunch of stuff for Fleabag, uh, which is a show on uh, Amazon. Uh, obviously, Phoebe Waller-Bridge has done a lot more than just Fleabag. She was the voice of the robot in Solo. She wrote and, I think, produced Killing Eve. Um, she's currently the script doctor on the new James Bond film that's coming out. She's just signed a big Amazon deal. She she is a big deal. She can act, she can write, she can produce. She's a script doctor. She can do it all. And at one stage, a couple of years ago, she was a potential doctor. 
when people were talking about, oh, well, it's probably going to be a female doctor. If it is a female doctor, who will it be? Jodie Whittaker's name was being kicked around. Olivia Coleman's name was being kicked around. And Phoebe Waller-Bridge was being kicked around. And I remember you were quite excited at that notion at the time, Rob. I certainly was, you know. And, and here I am, maybe justified that, yes, she really is a talent. She really is quite good. Uh, and she's winning all these awards. What it probably means, though, is she'll never be involved with Doctor Who now because she's too big for it. Yeah. <laughs> and I just, uh, as I think I said on Twitter recently, you know, dare to dream. What what could have been if she was like the 13th Doctor instead of, instead of Jodie? Uh, I think she would have been more quirky and had more presence and maybe could have even been involved with some of the writing, you know, such as her interest in that sort of thing. Uh, I think we even had a, a friend of the show commenting to us that, you know, what if what if she ended up being the showrunner of Doctor Who? And it's like, well, she's got the talent for it. I just don't know if she's interested in it or, or is maybe just a bit too big for it these days. But yeah, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, what a talent. And oh man, if she had, had been the Doctor, I think we would have been having some happy days. Uh, look, I don't think she would have done a, a bad job, whether it would have been better or worse than Jodie Whittaker. I mean, that's, that's hypothetical and how much of the problems with Jodie's Doctor are down to the writing, not the actress, I think is a, mm. an important question. But yeah, it's a, it's a definite, uh, definite path not travelled that's very interesting to think about. Yeah, I, I, I just think about, as I said, her quirky side, Dave. I mean, jo- Jodie can do sort of zany and, and sub-David Tennant and that sort of thing, but Phoebe Waller-Bridge can do really, really quirky. And it's, uh, yeah, I, I won't go on about it, but I, I do think she would have been a great Doctor. Maybe when she's sort of in a at the other end of her career and and she's got a bit of a quieter patch maybe she'll be the 18th doctor yeah maybe for example um you know people have thrown around michael sheen's name as a doctor and it was like oh no he's a bit too big for that he's off doing frost nixon or you know whatever but now that he's gone back to tv and he's done good omens and he's worked with neil gaiman it's almost like michael sheen might be heading back towards doctor who again as he's gotten a bit older so i know what you mean as these actors sort of have the that trajectory as it sort of dips again and they come back to tv and all that sort of stuff maybe 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 yes maybe maybe Mm. Uh, another joy of traveling is that you spend a lot of time at airports and on planes and trains and also just relaxing so you get to do a bit more just reading for fun and i did pull a few virgin new adventures off the shelf to take with me and i did reread them and thoroughly enjoyed them again i read exodus for probably the fourth time and i I didn't know at that stage that terence dix was going to pass away shortly after i got home but that is a remarkably good book and it, it is the one that i think really highlighted to people who are a little bit cynical about the Tiger books that he wrote, just how good a writer he was, mm. particularly when un- unconstrained by a page count and a budget. I reread David Banks's Iceberg. Yes. Which is the return of the Cybermen in the uh, in the McCoy era. Much better written than I remembered and, and really a very good book. It is very slow to start because it spends a lot of time setting up worlds and characters and that sort of thing. And you can sort of imagine probably the first half of the book would have very easily just made part one of a McCoy three-parter and then the other half would have would have would work very well as the next two parts mm. so that was fun and David A. McGinty's First Frontier which is uh, the first of his master trilogy which I also really enjoyed M- M- McGinty is a very talented writer and someone who really gets the show so nice to just have a chance to chill and read a few of those yeah McGinty a couple of his books have come through my letterbox recently I picked up The Dark Path I may have mentioned that to uh, Richard on the last monthly show yes yes and uh, also The Shadow of Wang Chiang has recently dropped here 
Oh, very cool. Mm, yeah, as I seek to now get all of the missing adventures as well. <laughs> a final little mini topic, which is unrelated to my travels. Of course, Rob, Doctor Who fans are a little bit obsessed and uh, very knowledgeable about the missing episodes of Doctor Who. Mm. But Doctor Who is not the only series that has missing episodes. Uh, another very popular series that does, of course, is Dad's Army, which had three missing episodes. Still does, in fact. Uh, and what the BBC have done in the last few months is they've taken the scripts for these three missing episodes and remade them. Yeah. So they've cast new people who all sort of you know, look and act vaguely like the original cast. They've re- rebuilt the sets and they, they've made these three new episodes. Now, I've watched two of them. The first thing I'll say is that the, the love and the care and the attention that has gone into remaking them is incredible. The, the sets look like exactly how you remember them from the original series of Dad's Army. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, because of this, a lot of fans are saying, well, could Doctor Who do the same? And I, look, look, of course it could. But I must say, my experience watching these episodes was one of enjoyment, but a real sort of a limited enjoyment because I always felt as though I was reaching for something I couldn't quite grasp. Uh, the actors are all very good. The cast is very good. But they always feel as though they're just reaching to be someone else. You know, it's not quite John LeMessurier playing Sergeant Wilson. Mm. It, and you always sort of feel that little bit of, oh, I'm just not quite there. Um, I've got to say the best is probably uh, Timothy West, who plays Private Godfrey. He, he's remarkably good. And, and yeah, There's nothing bad about it. They're, they're interesting to see, but I suspect if they did go and, you know, for example, remake The Massacre or... Uh, the Daleks' master plan in this way, fans would be interested in it, but maybe a little disappointed because it's it's never going to quite be what they want. It's always going to be just a little far away, a little out of reach. Yeah, it's 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 not the real thing. At the end of the day, it's a it's it's a pastiche. I'm not too interested in it myself. Again, you know, on some sort of intellectual level, it could be interesting. Like, look how they've recreated the set. Look how they've recreated the costume and such. But I think back to something like, you know, what was the 50th anniversary story that Gators did? Adventures in Time and Space or what, what was that? Uh, an Adventure in Space and Time. That's the one. And you just look, they've recast all the old characters and we see little clips from, from episodes and you think, oh, that could have been what that episode looks like. Oh, but I don't think I'd like to have seen the whole episode redone. It was it was just fun to see the behind the scenes of, of one scene, perhaps, of of one episode. You know, I'm not too interested in it myself. It's it's a very fanish thing. And even if I, as a fan, aren't particularly interested, um, I don't know what that would say for the viewing figures. Uh, yes, I mean, the, the, the Dad's Army specials, I believe, did rate very, very well. Whether there's something that will be in sort of continual circulation, I, I don't know. But, yeah, I just thought it was an interesting point, given that... Um, we talk a lot about missing episodes as Doctor Who fans. Yeah, and I guess Dad's Army doesn't have to compete with the fact that the show continued for so many years and still has a modern version out there and, you know, a, a, an ever-growing fan base of young people and stuff. It's, it's a completely different sort of audience, I think, for that. Yeah, I mean, Dad, Dad's Army is now just pure golden oldie nostalgia television. Yeah, exactly. With that, let's move into our main topic, Rob. So you had the suggestion that as something different, we would do a deep dive into one particular story. And I said I was very interested in doing that. And I had the stipulation that I think you agreed with very, very quickly and supportively that it had to be a story that wasn't one that's 
talked about a lot. Mm. It, it, it should be one of those classics we all talk about. It shouldn't be one of those uh, less than well-respected or well-regarded stories that we all talk about. Something that's maybe a little bit off the wall. And The Keeper of Traken appealed to both of us as being one of those stories that I think is kind of lost a little bit in this great seven-season epic that is the Tom Baker years. Mm. So we decided to talk about that. It also gave me a chance to crack open my new Blu-ray set. <laughs> That's true as well. That's true as well. And it's interesting to note, uh, our friends over at the Diddly Dumb podcast, a couple of episodes did a special on the Tom Baker era where they asked their audience to vote for their top five favourite Tom Baker stories. And the Keeper of Traken got no votes. None. None. Now, I suspect that's because whilst it's not in anybody's top five, it's probably in a lot of people's top 10 or top 15. But it's it's not one of those instant top five Tom classics that you reach for. It's a little bit forgotten's too strong a word, but a little bit forgotten. Is it because of what else is going on in that season and that it's the penultimate episode before Legopolis? Is, is it just its position in, in the Tom Baker pantheon? Yeah, I think that's part of it as well. I think... Yeah. It's also not part of the Hinchcliffe era, which if somebody says to you, what are your top five Toms? I think for a lot of people, the first place you go is the Hinchcliffe era. Yes. Oh, without doubt. And and for others, they'll say, oh, I'm also you know, a big fan of the Williams era. And they'll they'll go grab City of Death or whatever it might be out of, out of that. But a lot of people, I guess, sort of forget that there's this wonderful adjunct to the Tom Baker era, which is season 18, one of, one of my top three classic seasons I, I love this season and it does sort of sit in there and it's it's not the leisure hive which is the big new wow doctor who wow doctor who's changed and it's not logopolis it's not part of the east base tree trilogy and lala ward's not in it and yeah it, it gets forgotten so before we dive in too far mm. rob i'm going to ask you what are your memories of this story dave i would have seen this around the mid 80s probably around age 10 or 11 or something like that and I initially, and I have felt this way about other Doctor Who shows I've come to, to really love over time, I was a little bored by it. I didn't quite... Well, I understood what was going on, but I didn't get quite get why it was interesting, if that makes any sense. Right. And I also thought the Master didn't look as good as the last time I'd seen him in, in Deadly Assassin. And so I kind of wrote it off as being a bit... Meh. But I've I've subsequently changed my mind about it. I do quite like it these days, but I'll, I'll cut off there and, and ask you the same question. So I've gone back and actually looked up some dates. And I would have first seen this in May of 1984. Now, I don't, I don't remember it, but do you remember, Rob, back when season 21 went out in Australia for the first time? Yes. And they got to the end of The Planet of Fire... And the censors still hadn't released Caves of Androzani for, for, for viewing. They still were, how the hell do we show this at six o'clock? Like, what? So yeah. the, the ABC just said, uh, anyway, um, look, we don't have anything more for you. We're going back to the Leisure Hive and going to show you season 18 again. <laughs> and I, I remember that I remember that season going out. I don't really remember The Keeper of Traken uh, from that, but I would have seen it. Mm. But my real memories come from May of 1988, when the ABC repeated most of the Tom Baker era on Saturday afternoons. Now, I got this in Melbourne as two episodes. So parts one and two were broadcast in an omnibus format one week and then the next week 
parts three and four as an omnibus. So I, I didn't know the cliffhangers of parts one and three for many, many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robin, Sydney, you would have got this as a complete omnibus, uh, one 90-minute episode on a Saturday afternoon, uh, and you would have got it in March of 1988. Yeah, I was scratching my head there, Dave, as you were talking, because I was thinking, I remember the omnibus stuff, but I don't remember them being in two parts. I remember it just being in like one part. So did we get a different sort of omnibus here in Sydney to you? You did, you did. You got everything in Omnibus. We got most things in uh, double episodes. Right, okay. Yeah, because I remember taping things off screen and having like Planet of Fire as this one 90-minute movie, as I've described it in the past. And I think that contributes to my love for it because I think of it as a movie, you know, being out there on location and having seen it as that kind of Omnibus. But uh, I guess we're digressing from Keeper of Track, but that's really interesting, actually. Yeah, it, it brought back some memories for me. And I've got to say, I'm the opposite to you, Rob. As an, I would have been not quite eight when I saw this and, and well and truly involved in uh, being a Doctor Who fan by that by that age. And I really adored this. And the things that I adored about it then, I still adore about it now. Mm-hmm. And that is the look and the feel and, and the excitement of it. I think I've mentioned before that particularly as a kid, I wanted Doctor Who to be gleaming metal and flashing lights. And Keeper of Traken gives you that. You've got the source manipulator machine and the imagery of the Keeper and the flame behind the Keeper and all these little things that I, I really like. It looks great. It feels like an adventure. As I've grown up, I, I still love those things, but there have been other things I like that I have uh, come to appreciate. Yeah, I was, I was cogitating on this earlier today and I was thinking... At the time, I was a Star Wars kid, and Star Wars is very much, you know, science fantasy. And I think Keeper of Traken is science fantasy writ large. You know, the the sort of society they have. You know, they're getting around in these sort of Shakespearean costumes, uh, and and the way their society is set up, and so on. And yet, they're also extremely technological. You know, well in advance of of us here on on Earth today. And it's that interesting juxtaposition you know, that gives it this fairy tale, science fantasy kind of feel that I, I really like now. And I, I just don't know why I didn't like it at the time, because I love Star Wars and I love the science fantasy feel of Star Wars. That's interesting. I mean, there's not a lot of spaceships and robots and that sort of thing, which maybe as a kid we do, we do look for. And, and even the Melka, as, as wonderful a design as it is, couldn't really be called a monster in the in the traditional Doctor Who sense. So it, it is lacking that. But it, it occurs to me, literally just as we're talking, this does kind of pull in some ways from the best of the three different sub-eras of Tom's era. Because in the same way that uh, the Hinchcliffe era would say, right, this week we're doing Frankenstein, and this week we're doing uh, Sherlock Holmes in London, and this week we're doing King Kong. This week, the Keeper of Traken is doing Shakespeare. It's doing The Tempest. It's doing Macbeth. Mm. And it also takes that literary sort of influences that the Williams era really has and puts them in. And it is a very literarily aware episode. But it's also got the Christopher H. Bidmead, let's have real science in there, or, or at least real scientific terms and concepts in there. And it kind of blends them all together in a real wonderful sort of best of the Tom Baker era vibe, I think. Yeah, ab- absolutely agree with that. And look, you mentioned the Melka there. Can we, I, I guess we can just dive in and talk about anything. So can we talk about the Melka and, and what it is? Because I think I was confused by this as a child. And when I was rewatching it again this week, I was having to still put it together in my head. The Master and his TARDIS is inside the Melka, yes? 
I'm not sure. You're not sure. Sh- well, see, here we go. You're not sure. To me, the TARDIS is inside the Melka, and the Melka is some kind of machine that is almost TARDIS-like, because obviously the Master's in it, there's a control room and such, and, and his viewport is even like the Melka's eyes, so I don't know whether the Master's shrunk down inside it to be looking out of the eyes like that, or whether it's just, you know, just the way it's set up. And I took it to be that the Melkers arrived there and maybe the Master has stayed inside in his TARDIS inside the Melka while he not regenerates but sort of recovers a bit from when we last saw him in Deadly Assassin which is why he's maybe a little more human looking in this episode than the the cadaverous version in Deadly Assassin. Am I making any sense? Is this how you've thought of it, Dave? Or am I just have I got head cannon going on? Some of it I, I agree with you, and some of it is, is a completely new concept to me, which is interesting. Uh, I do think that at the the idea of him being more human-looking is, is a real, genuine story-based one. At the end of Deadly Assassin, the Doctor very clearly says that there was lots of energy coming out of the Eye of Harmony, and the Master was wearing the sash, would have absorbed it. So, he, he, he I think, I think that you know, he, he has renewed himself in that sense. I thought there were two possibilities about what the Master's doing here. Uh, one is that his TARDIS is disguised as the Melka, and twenty odd years ago he arrived at Trak and, and just sat there and waited for his plan to come to fruition and the moment for the Keeper to die, mm. uh, which works, but given the master would know when the keeper was going to die because it's all history to a time lord why didn't he not just come out you know six months before three days before yeah um and, and you know part of that's because he wants to ingratiate himself with and manipulate cassia but 20 years seems a long time uh, the other option is that the melka is just one of these evil entities that gets captured in the the orbit of or, or the influence of Traken and it, it comes down and it, it becomes a statue in the grove, and it's implied that that happens a lot. There are lots of milkers on, on across the Traken Union that are just evil entities that get get trapped there. And, and do we that take some... that to be? Sorry to interrupt. Do we take that to be a name? They don't all look like the Melka. They could look like a lot of different things. It's it's just evil things that are being pulled in and, and calcified like that. I, I think so. I think so. Yeah. Uh, and, and at some point in that twenty years, uh, the Master has replaced this actual Melka with his TARDIS disguised as the Melka. So maybe he wasn't there for 20 years. He did just sort of come along six months earlier and prepared his his plan. But, I mean, this is all clearly because the Master wasn't in the original concept. And, in fact, up to the point where Johnny Byrne, the, the writer, submitted his scripts, the Master wasn't in it. The Master was inserted at JNT's request by Christopher Bidmeter as the script editor once... Johnny Byrne had gone on holiday, so I don't think the concept really quite works that way. The Master has been inserted into an existing story. Okay, so this might explain why inside the Melka it's more of a traditional sort of a control panel. It's, it doesn't look like a TARDIS at all, which is why I was thinking it might have been a separate thing to the Master's TARDIS, because clearly the Master is using that control panel, but it's not in his TARDIS, I don't think. Uh, I always assumed it was, but now I'm doubting that. Yeah, because it just doesn't seem like it. It's it's more of a traditional control panel with, like, you know, the as I say, you're looking out the eyes of the Melka. That's true. That That is true. But it does dematerialise and rematerialise like a TARDIS would and with the sound effect. Yes, although when it lands on the planet, it doesn't land like a TARDIS, Dave. <laughs> no, no, which I, I, I guess either implies that my second theory is correct or simply that the production team is just fudging it because 
if it did arrive like a TARDIS, that would kind of give away the ending. That is true. So let's go with Fudge. Let's go with Fudge. Um, I wanted to make a big point early in this discussion, Rob. And that is, as I look at this story, it is in many ways, structurally particularly, a very unusual Doctor Who story, particularly for the classic era. Mm, Tell me more. Let me give you a couple of dot points. Uh, It is a very rare occasion in Doctor Who where we get, at least in part one, a non-linear narrative. Mm-hmm. We get we get story told in flashback, which I, I struggle to think of another occasion in Doctor Who where that happens in the classic era. Yeah, and, and for people who haven't seen the episode, but you're still listening to us talk about it, you've got the Doctor and Adric on the TARDIS uh, watching scenes that the, the Keeper has appeared inside the TARDIS and is showing them scenes on the TARDIS viewfinder. Yes, this is what happened last month sort of thing. Yeah. And, and then eventually the two plots... Uh, catch up to each other. It's a story that ends on an overt downbeat cliffhanger. Well, yeah, you think it's going to end pretty well <laughs> until the final moments. <laughs> yeah, it, it gives you a whole lot. You know, so you you get that traditional end of part four, however many episodes there are, but end of part four uh, scene of everybody's happy and the Doctor and his companion have headed off into the next adventure and they get a bit of a tag scene in the TARDIS. You think, oh, okay, well that's a traditional ending. Then it cuts back to Traken and suddenly the Master's TARDIS is there and suddenly the Master's there and suddenly Tremas is killed and or mm-hmm. taken over and then Nissa comes down, Father, where are you? Cut to credits. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very unusual thing for a Doctor Who story to end like that and, and overtly set up the next story. It's, it's unusual, it's bleak and uh, something I read about this recently, Dave, when you think about it, the Doctor, think of... I can't think of any other time where the Doctor saved the day on a planet and and left, and in the very next story, that planet has been destroyed. But that's what yeah. happens with, with Traken. Yeah, well, not not just the planet, the whole Traken Union, all the planets. Yeah. The whole, the whole of Matilla Orionsis is, is destroyed, so it, it, that is unique as well. Uh, the Keeper bringing the Doctor to Gallifrey. Although we've had the Doctor summoned a couple of times, you know, by, by the Time Lords or by... Uh, an emergency beacon or, or something like that. The idea of somebody just popping into the TARDIS and saying, hey, Doctor, come and help me out. And the Doctor going, okay, we're off to track. And then that's an unusual way to start a story. It is. I mean, it, it, it suggests a godlike sort of power, although it does happen in Greatest Show in the Galaxy as well, uh, where it clearly wasn't a godlike power that could <laughs> invade yes. the TARDIS. So uh, six of one, half a dozen of the other for me there. Well, it's unique enough of a power for the Doctor to go, the fact you did this and you're sitting in a chair suggests you must be the keeper of Kraken. <laughs> yes. Also, just thinking of those early scenes, Dave, where he pull, the Doctor pulls out those old books and he's got himself and Adric reading them to read up, uh, I think, on information on Traken, if I recall what I yes. watched uh, just earlier this week. God, my memory's terrible. Um, do you think the Hartnell Doctor wrote those journals? It's a very Hartnell-type thing to do, isn't it? Yeah, like as an explorer uh, in the universe might have started those journals and wrote things down in a very dry sort of way. <laughs> yeah, I like that idea. Yeah. And the, the final unusual point I want to make is that this is the Doctor and a male companion and that's it. Yeah, and don't they work well together? They work so well together. Uh, this possibly Legopolis, but if not Legopolis, I think this is Matthew Waterhouse's best story in the role and the relationship he has with tom baker and the relationship those two characters have is so wonderful and this is this is to me what i think of when i think of adric and i this is where 
the character of Adric really works. Matthew Waterhouse has given material he's very comfortable with and very able to do. He he clearly works well acting alongside Tom Baker. He then works very well both as a character and as an actor working alongside Sarah Sutton as Nissa. Or and, Nisa, as he calls her at one stage. <laughs> that's right. Uh, but yeah, look, I think this is a really good story for Adric, and it's a it's a real shame. This this is one of those combinations like the Fifth Doctor and Perry that I think I just wish we could have had just a few more stories of this. Yeah, it's interesting. If we got a few more stories, maybe the magic would have worn off. Maybe the magic's there because it is just this one outing and it worked, you know, reasonably well. Because I do agree with you completely, Dave, that the way these two get on is great. In fact, at times, because we know what was happening off screen, that Tom was a a cranky old bugger and he, he didn't particularly like Matthew Waterhouse and such... I kept watching this and sort of cringing, thinking, oh, we're going to have a scene where he's not going to be looking at Matthew properly or they're not going to bounce off each other very well. But no, all their interactions in this are really fantastic. Adric is not annoying at all. He does go well with with Sarah Sutton. Although I do say if we had more of it, could the magic have worn off? I don't know. Look, look, maybe. The other thing that, of course, is important is for the first time since Adric joined the TARDIS crew, Lala Ward is not there. That's true too. Now, I'm a big fan of Lala Ward and Romana, the character, but we all know a lot of the tensions around Tom in that year were were to do with his uh, turbulent relationship with Lala Ward. Mm-hmm. That I think Matthew Waterhouse, and, you know, he's written in his autobiography, uh, Blue Box Boy, a very good book. He's written in there that sometimes he was just this guy on the set, just stuck between Tom Baker and Lala Ward having a massive lovers quarrel and you know what do you do you know you're an 18 year old 19 year old actor and you two more senior regular cast are having relationship problems in front of you bringing it onto the set and you know we know tom brought this onto the set yeah uh, yeah and now that now that's been removed and i think maybe that does allow matthew waterhouse as well to relax a bit and and, and tom to relax a bit as well and waterhouse does talk about that in his autobiography just what it was like to work with tom in that year yeah, big thumbs up for Tom and um, and Matthew in this episode. Yeah, I've, I've spoken in praise of, of, of Matthew, but I, I need to mention Tom as well. This to me is, I hesitate to say it because there's so many good Toms, but I think this is my favourite Tom. I really like him in this season. I think the slightly older look works very well for him. The, the increased world weariness works really well for him, but he's, he's still got that spark. He's still got that wonderful love of life. And that scene you mentioned earlier, Rob, where they're going through the journals and talking about the Doctor's prose style and <laughs> all, all that sort of thing. That's a lovely scene. And Tom's really tender and funny in that. And he gets other moments like that as well. But at the other end of the scale, the moment he has in part three, I think it is, maybe part four, where he's asking Tremas for the plans to the source manipulator. And Tremas is like, I... I can't give you that. I swore an oath that I would never hand those over. And the way Tom plays that, he doesn't get angry. He doesn't get loud and blustery. He just, well, that's fine. That's that's fine. Melka will take over Traken. Thousands will die. The Empire will be in ruins. <laughs> but that's okay, because you'll have kept your honour intact. <laughs> yes. He plays it so well. He does. He does. And, and, and you know, his, his craziness from the previous season has been reined in and and i love the costume as well so i I, as i say you know there's a lot of good tom there's a lot of enjoyable tom across his seven years but i think this is my favorite version of tom 
That's interesting because he does he doesn't look a hundred percent well. That the hair is has straightened out in a lot of areas. Uh, he turns sideways at different times. And I think, my God, he is so thin. Like he doesn't look like the bigger, bulkier sort of man that I think of from earlier seasons. And I think he had had some health issues around he, State he had, of Decay, for example. Absolutely, yes. I mean, State of Decay was the the story where he had to have his hair curled because it was so so flat. Yeah, and and even here, his hair's a bit off. He looks really thin. The costume, I I don't mind it. I, I'd love to get rid of the question marks on the collar. That's still one of my bugbears. True, of it. true. But you know, as an ensemble, it's pretty good. I like the long boots. I like the coat. You know, I think it does suit him. It's not a bad costume by any means. Uh, yeah, do it. Is it my favorite Tom Bay? I couldn't go that far, Dave. But it's interesting. And it's mature, and I like those aspects of it. Shall I give you something that I don't like about the story? Yeah, please. Uh, I think the music is horrible. Oh, I'm so glad you said this, because aside from the really well-known and and popular little and theme that you hear towards the start of the story when we first see the court, you probably know the piece of music I mean. I think it's the Traken Wedding theme or something it's called. Yeah, something like that. And, it, and it's really memorable. It's, it's a great little piece of music. The rest of it is just like a cat's walked along the synthesizer and it's slightly <laughs> too loud. It's just bloody awful. When we did a episode where we talked about Doctor Who music some probably a couple of years ago now, I remember making the point that I like a lot of the music in season 18. I think when the Radiophonic Workshop is given the task of writing the script, writing the script, is given the task of writing the scores, they come up with some really wonderful and, and memorable scores. But I made the point at the time, I think it's disappointing that every story gets electronic music because some just aren't suited to it. And I think The Keeper of Tracket is one of them. I think that a traditional Dudley Simpson string quartet with a couple of you know bassoons or something uh, in addition, or, you know, a couple of French horns and a whole bunch of violins, you know, that sort of a feel, or maybe a harpsichord or something. Real instruments that evoke that sort of Renaissance court feeling would have been really, really appropriate here. And even even that wedding score, I, I remember it being on a cassette that I had of Doctor Who music from, I think, the 20th anniversary or something. Mm. E- e- even that, I think, doesn't quite work because it's so clearly a synthesizer of some sort had that been an actual string quartet, I think that would have been a much nicer thing. I, I, I think they missed a trick by not having, uh, in inverted commas, real music or real instruments. Yeah, oh, that wedding score would have sounded better, that's for sure. But as a little piece of music, I think it's quite competent as as music, you know, like music notation on the page. I think it's very good. But yeah, I, I totally agree with the music. At times it's just overwhelming, overpowering, and just, just awful to listen to. What do you make of Traken itself? I love it. I was about to bring this up. I was about to say, wouldn't it be great if we could go back to Traken? And I guess we can. We can go back to it in the past. Um, I just love this this fairy tale feel to it. This this little grove that they go out to. The the guys protecting the grove. They they're sort of part you know groundskeepers, part security guards. I guess <laughs> yes. you know uh, this society that dresses and acts in a certain way but is highly technological as i mentioned earlier i i love how all of this comes together i find tracking quite an interesting 
sort of place. And it's funny, I was reading Goth Opera recently, and in that you sort of get a bit of an insight into Nissa's scientific understanding and knowledge and things she learned on Traken and stuff. And it got me thinking about Traken in general. I think it's it's a really well constructed for for what we have in front of us for 25 minute episodes of you know a children's television show it's a well constructed world compared to what we get in many episodes and i really appreciate that kind of thing yeah i absolutely agree this is i think one of the things that really makes this a strong story and that is that it is a world or, or a series of worlds in fact that you suddenly understand you 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 get that they're a very aristocratic sort of society you get they've held on to a lot of these renaissance sort of vibes while still being highly technological you you understand that the, the who the consuls are you understand who the fosters are interestingly this wasn't how johnny byrne originally imagined the society to be he actually imagined it being something on that that old awful sci-fi cliche of having the scientists people and the uh, religious sort of people a la Megalos and no. uh, fortunately because Megalos had already done that they said no don't do not do that but but that was sort of where he was originally coming from. A point though that I noticed is that there is a little bit of a dark tinge to this society and I don't know whether it's deliberate or it's just the way that in a lot of sci-fi when a world seems perfect mm-hmm. and a utopia it, it often proves not to be and it occurred to me that this is actually a very undemocratic sort of society in that the way I think it, it works is the keeper appoints his consuls mm-hmm. and then then at the end he appoints his successor. So there, there's no democracy on this planet or in this union. Uh, it's, it's really just sort of a, a benevolent dictatorship. And there are moments such as the bit where Seron enters rapport with the keeper where the keeper is really quite... Um, almost scary in the way that he reacts to Seron and kind of just allows him to be killed almost as a punishment. Yeah. Now look, there's a couple of things to, to unpack there. You're quite right. And <laughs> although it does make me giggle. Uh, when, when Cassia gets appointed by the other two consuls, is that, is that legal? Because shouldn't they have a full quorum of, of consuls to be appointing her? It is but... a very unusual <laughs> thing where the keeper said, okay, I'm appointing Tremas. And they've said, well, we're just going to lock Tremus up and appoint somebody else. And uh, yeah, yeah, like, you know, two people get to pick who the next keeper for the next thousand years is going to be. And it's the person who just locked up her political rival. <laughs> and I, I know I say that in fun, but yeah, you've got to think about it. Think, oh, is that really fair? Yeah. That, yeah. Uh, speaking of Cassia and Tremus, I think that Sheila Ruskin's performance as Cassia is excellent. I think that Anthony Anley's performance as Tremax is excellent. I never buy them as a couple. Oh, no. <laughs> Cassia has some wonderful lines about how much she loves her husband, and Tremax has some wonderful lines about how much he loves his wife, but you never see it. You never buy that. I, I just never buy it at all. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that's a big flaw. Do you think it's the age of them as well? Yeah, maybe. And, and, and this is a, this is another point that I wanted to discuss with you, Rob. The timeline for this. Is it that they had Tremas and Cassia's wedding? The keeper comes along at the reception and blesses them, sees what's going on and senses something's not knots up and sort of ducks out of the reception straight to the TARDIS and the TARDIS arrives pretty much the morning after the wedding? Or is it that a few months have flowed and they've settled down into sort of 
routine domesticity and the doctor arrives a little bit afterwards how how quick do you think the doctor's arrival is after that wedding gosh that's hard to say i mean i mean just watching it on screen you sort of get swept up that it's all happening pretty much the morning after mm. but it could in theory be a, a a long time after as you know weeks maybe yeah um, I, i'd always assumed it was but on viewing this time i thought actually no maybe maybe it really is you know the, the day or two after the wedding in, in which case again the, the neither of them act like a newly married couple i think would act no no and it's interesting because as you say they both give good performances in general yeah, great performances they're yeah. doing great stuff but you just don't buy them as a couple for, for me it's the age thing she's how long has she been tending to the Melka and putting flowers at its feet? Is it five years, ten years, something like that? Yeah. Since she was a young girl, whereas he's already an old guy, you know. Well, he's old enough to have a eighteen-ish-year-old daughter. Yeah, and even then, it looks like he might have had her later in life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For me, it's the age thing that I don't buy. I just don't. And I mean, I know in society. There are younger girls who go out with older guys, and maybe it's for power, maybe it's for money, maybe for both. You know, sometimes it's for love. Sometimes it's for love, but <laughs> not often, Dave. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to judge other people's relationships, Rob. You can, oh, you can have am. that one. Okay, well, those those people who are uh, romantics, right to Rob, not me. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think okay, it does happen, but it doesn't happen a lot. I yeah, agree. I don't buy it. Let's mention Jeffrey Beavers. Yeah, we haven't really... I mean, we've mentioned the Master and such, but we haven't got to Beavers himself. Beavers or Pratt? Dave, I think that's the question on my lips. Gee. <laughs> uh, I think that Beavers is a more interesting voice actor. I think that Pratt was a more exciting master in that he just looked that much worse and in that he looked scarier and there was a much greater sense of desperation from him. Mm-hmm. But... Beaver's voice in this is remarkably good, and I think that does carry a lot of the story and carry a lot of his performance. I've actually seen and met Jeffrey Beavers. He was at the convention where I met Terence Sticks. That's that same convention, and so right. I met him there and did saw him do some Q and A. But I actually saw him in a play on Broadway called The Audience, where he played the equerry to Helen Mirren's Queen Elizabeth. Oh, that would have been very good. So that was very good. So I have seen Beavers perform. On, on Broadway, so that, that's a little side note there. I, I think he gives a remarkably good performance here uh, and carries the whole thing. I mean, you you need to believe that Cassia can be manipulated by the Melka, and his performance lets you believe that. Mm. And what what is telling of his performance too, the first couple of episodes at least, he's just a bit of a voice and uh, and a hand. Uh, you don't even see him. Yeah, he's he's a voice. Then he's a voice in the hand, and then he's sort of a voice in a, a silhouette. Uh, then you see the whole thing, and then the doctor meets him. Exactly. And when they meet, I guess there would be people in the audience who hadn't uh, seen a master story before. They might not have even seen Deadly Assassin a few years earlier. But when they meet, you know that these two guys have a history. <laughs> And, yes. you know, they, they could really go at it, even if you haven't seen all the Pertwee and Delgado stories. And Tom makes the really correct, I think, acting decision there to really underplay. And that adds a sense of real gravitas 
to what Beavers is doing because Beavers gets to be the bigger bad guy and I'm going to do these evil things to you and Tom's very still mm. very quiet and that I think really emphasises the, the balance between them and it's a very good performance from both yeah. I do agree. So yeah, look, uh, Jeffrey Beavers, thumbs up from me. Generally speaking, I want to praise the visual look of this story. Yes. Like the whole of season 18. Season season 18 looks amazing. John Nathan Turner has come in as the acting producer with Barry Letts as the executive producer and they just make the budget work. They find designers and directors and, and crew that want to make this work. And the sets look gorgeous. Uh, the, the Grove is lovely. I think it works. It, would it work better if they'd had a bit of location filming and it was an actual Grove? Maybe, but maybe that wouldn't have been within the tone of the story. I don't know. The costumes are lovely. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the the props, like the, just the, 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 the look of the source manipulator, that's a wonderful evocative thing something as simple as the flame behind the keeper's chair that entranced me as a kid as a kid i instantly knew what it meant and how it worked and that as the flame went down the keeper was weaker and mm-hmm. then the, then the moment where the the keeper's death is portrayed so simply just by the flame going out but so effectively yeah. i think there's, there's there's a lot to really praise in the way that this was put together Yeah, and something I picked up on too, we often talk about in the 80s stories, uh, the lighting being way too bright. Here, out in the grove, the scenes are noticeably darker than when they cut to inside. There there is a definite difference in lighting, and they've they've darkened those scenes in the grove. It looks wonderful. Yeah, and, and even the difference between, for example, the courtroom and the control room, and then the passages underneath, or the or the cellars and the and the like underneath. There, there is a real differentiation of lighting there, and then they really drop it, of course, for the death of the keeper. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I want to praise that as well. We need to mention, or at least I want to mention, the episode three cliffhanger, which is horrible. The moment where Cassia assumes the keepership, having effectively sacrificed herself. So her husband doesn't have to, which, look, even though I don't buy the relationship, I, I understand the plot point and I get that and I get her motivation and, and, and her performance is wonderful. And then she's she has a TARDIS basically land inside her. Yes. That's a horrible death. And it's really so effectively done. She screams and writhes and there's that effect and then it cuts to the credits and, oh, that's such a good cliffhanger. Yeah, I do agree with you on that. That's, uh, that is a good one. Uh, any weak performances you had here? You know what? I I really don't think there is. I I have a soft spot for this story. I confess. I love the fairy tale feel to it. Um, maybe that papers over a few cracks here and there. On the whole, there's there's no sort of actor who stands out. I think, oh God, that's that guy who's terrible every time I watch this, or or woman. No, I I don't get that. Yeah, look, my weak one is Ronald Oliver as Neiman. Not that I think he's doing a bad performance. I just don't think he's quite hit the same tone as the other characters. Um, you look at the way that Margot Vandenberg is playing Couture and she's wonderful and mm-hmm. Shakespearean and John Woodnut is playing Seren, you know, and he's he's doing all the, you know, gathered out hugger-mugger around and, mm-hmm. you know, he, he's doing Shakespeare and uh, Robin Soans, who's still acting today, he's in, uh, he's in Victoria, actually, with um, uh, Jenna Coleman. Huh. He's, he's a recurring character in that. 
he plays Luvik, and he, he's 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 a wonderful, lovely character. You know, I don't understand what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I think I think there's some really good ones in there. One of the things that I think is good. Everybody talks about the Shakespearean influence of this, and, and there are clear Shakespearean influences. We spoke about the Tempest. We've mentioned Macbeth. Uh, even to some extent, some of the Henry plays. But of course, there is a lot of Julius Caesar in this as well, right down to the fact that Cassia is obviously analogous to Cassius in mm-hmm. in the Julius Caesar play. And I think the real moment that I think is quite a lovely little homage is that there's almost a direct lift out of Shakespeare here. Now, I'll, I'll read you a couple of lines from Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, and then we'll, we'll, we'll mention the, the line that's referenced Um but in ourselves, that we are underlings. Brutus and Caesar. What should be in that Caesar? Why should that name be sounded more than yours? Write them together. Yours is as fair a name, which we get as named. Cassius is as good a name as Tremas. Mm. It's, it's a real, as close to a direct lift as I think you're going to get. And I think that shows the pedigree and the, the fun and the uh, performances of this story, which... I think is an overlooked gem in Doctor Who's uh, Pantheon. Yeah, that is very much a shorthand version of the Shakespeare and uh, agree with your assessment there. So that's our thoughts on The Keeper of Traken, but we asked for listener thoughts and we have got some, Rob. Do you want to kick us off? Yeah, we do. Uh, our mate over in the UK, Matt Barber, who tweets at Matt Barber UK. He does film arc reviews there on Twitter. He says of Keeper of Traken, it's great terrified me as a kid entranced me as an adult theatrical and thoughtful in the best sense oh lovely uh local friend of the podcast rob kelly who tweets at robert kelly tweets he says haven't seen this one for a while but the last time i put it in the dvd player i really enjoyed it there's a little love heart there Hmm. it's one of those stories that has translated well into my adulthood as a teenager i thought it was dull and didn't rank it doctor who can't wait to hear the show well, there you go. You've heard There us. you go. I think he agrees more with you there, Rob, that he uh, came to appreciate it more as he got older. Yeah, yeah. And, and I've been like that. As I said, I've done that with other episodes I really love. Kinder. Kinder, I just didn't rate as a, as a young'un. And now I think Kinder is the second best, yeah, second best Davo. Uh, yep, I can understand that. Mm. And finally, at DC Signal, who is Darren Signal, who often writes into us, Dave says, I knew Tom was regenerating soon, and because of the delays we were getting with TVNZ, I thought this could be his last story. I watched with trepidation, expecting the worst with every cliffhanger. But fantastic, he survived, and we got another serial. Yeah, look, that's great. And uh, isn't it wonderful that we've had three tweets from three different countries? Yeah, yeah, that is very nice. And thank you so much for uh, for telling us your thoughts on the show. I know I put that tweet out rather late in the day when it comes to recording this episode, so I was lucky to, uh, to get those. But if you have your thoughts, please do write in and tell us or, or tweet us. We'll be delighted to hear that. And also whether you've enjoyed the concept of a deep dive into a single story, something we haven't done. Do you want us to do more of it? Are there stories you think are forgotten and would like us to chat about? We'd love to hear your feedback. Yeah, absolutely, because I, I particularly enjoyed doing this, just concentrating on the one episode, or one story, I should say. I wouldn't want to do it too often, but yeah, I think it could be a nice one to have in the bag, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Shall we wrap up the show, Dave? 
we will. So we'll wrap up with a couple of emails. Uh, the first comes in from yet another country where we have a listener. So, Rob, you're going to take us through that one. <laughs> yeah, this is... I, I really loved getting this one um, about a week ago, Dave. It, it kicks off, Hello, Rob and Dave, and greetings from Miami, Florida, USA. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've commented once or twice on your Facebook page, but this will be my first actual letter to y'all. I want to start out by saying this podcast you guys put out is one done with a lot of love, care, and respect for Doctor Who. When I first discovered you and started listening, it was for the premiere of number 13 season since I'd got caught up from years of all but forgetting that Doctor Who was back on the air. I grew up watching it on public television like very many Americans and was completely enthralled with Tom Baker's antics and adventures. Some older cousins would watch it and of course I wanted to do whatever they did. From that era I remember the Daleks, Davros and someone in a fish suit but not much else. I'm guessing uh, full circle there Dave. Fish suit? Yeah, if it was sort of season 17, 18, maybe, yeah. That would make yeah. sense. That's yeah. all I can think of. Yeah. Uh, once caught up on the new episodes, I totally stumbled across your podcast and have been loyal ever since. I even went back to download your discussions of my past New Who favourites. It always stings a bit when I love an episode or stories, but you guys don't. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, but there's a swell of pride when I love the same things you love. I even started listening to the episodes... Uh, I never knew anything about because of the way you guys present your opinions and discussions. It helps me flesh out the era and understand the entire universe better until I get the chance to actually watch the episodes. Thanks for keeping me engaged. Oh, wow, Dave. I wonder if he's uh, watched uh, The Keeper of Traken. Yeah, that'll be interesting, yes. Hmm. Uh, as far as your episode of Terence Dix, I was one of the people who didn't really have an understanding of exactly how much he contributed to Doctor Who. I knew his name because of how highly you both spoke of him, but to have you guys lay it all out on the table the way you did really opened my eyes to his contribution and influence. I have come to understand that he helped lay so much groundwork for the thing we all love, and for him to have also prompted a generation of kids to take up reading is the Lord's work. I'm very glad you re-aired it and that I had the chance to learn more about him. Anyway, thank you for taking the time to read this. I hope it makes it to air. Take care, y'all, from Sheldon Carnegie. Well, there's no way an email that lovely wasn't going to go to air. So yeah, exactly. uh, no, thank you very much. That's a really nice, uh, nice thing to hear from a listener. Yeah, thank you so much, Sheldon. Love it. And we have a, another email that came in tonight from uh, your co-host last month, Rob, we, uh, Richard, mm-hmm. uh, long, long time friend. I've known Richard since back sometime last century. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, very sad to hear about the passing of Terence Dix late last month. I was never lucky enough to have met him, but much like his impact on Doctor Who, which is equal to or arguably greater than a number of the Doctors, he has left an indelible mark on my formative years. Growing up in the 70s and 80s, I'm very much of the generation encouraged to read, thanks to the Target books most of which seemed to come from his pen, and these, together with books like Canine and Other Mechanical Creatures and the Doctor Who Monster books, provided a lot of my early knowledge of the series, particularly Hartnell and Troughton, neither of whom I really saw until I was in my late teens. I went on to read a number of Terence's other works, like the Baker Street Irregulars and the StarQuest trilogy, and a series with modern spins on classic monsters like the vampires and the werewolves. And Rob, that's something we didn't really get to mention in a great deal of depth in our Terence Dick's discussion, but yes, he's got a lot of work 
out there. Richard's given a couple of very good examples of some of his non-Doctor Who work. Mm, Definitely. As I got older and started to learn more about the -the behind-the-scenes world of our favourite series, I came to appreciate just how much of what we accept as Doctor Who lore was established under his watch and with his involvement. Of course, the Tiger novels kept on coming with that familiar name on the covers, even though he was no longer novelising eight to ten stories a year. And even after the classic series ended and the adventures moved into other media, Terence was still there writing new adventures for the Doctor. I know it became fashionable among the more read authors and fans of the Virgin books to criticise Terence Dix's style and easy prose, particularly from the Target days, but his full-length novel showed his skill as a writer and just how much of his Target output was due to that dictate of the page and word count. I reread Exodus after hearing of his passing and still rated it as one of the best novels of the New Adventure range. Certainly something I'd agree with there. Yeah. It is perhaps a shame that he was not commissioned to write a television script for the new series. Maybe Peter Capaldi's Doctor might have been the best fit. But he leaves a huge legacy in the Doctor Who universe and, dare I say it, a special place in the affections of many fans. I know this old fan is sad to hear of his passing, but thankful for all the memories. I think that sums up our feelings very well. Thank you for sending that in, Richard. Yeah, really good words there, Richard, for sure. Well, we're now at that time where we wrap up our show. Once again, we hope you enjoyed it and we would love to hear your thoughts on anything we've discussed, but particularly the Keeper of Traken. Now, a couple of things to look out for over the next month and a reveal of the next episode. Uh, At time of recording, Joker is out in a week's time and I think Richard and I are very much looking forward to seeing that and I think it's fairly safe to say will be inspired to do another review. So for those of you who listen to our occasional movie reviews, I think one of Joker will come out. It's probably about 10 days or so after the movie's out. We like to leave a little bit of spoiler space there for people to see it. Yeah, Joker's an interesting one. I don't get out to see a lot of movies at all, uh, whereas you, Dave, see about one a week. Um, (laughs) Yes, literally, yes. (laughs) So we're quite different in that respect. But Joker is the kind of movie, if I found myself in the right place at the right time, I would go and see it at a theatre. It absolutely fascinates me the way it looks. I've also seen a lot of people getting antsy saying, oh, you know, this Joker looks good, but his Batman's going to be Robert Pattinson. And I keep saying no, because this Joker movie set in like 1981. It's it's a completely different time zone to where the Robert Pattinson Batman's going to be at. And I also think it could be just a one-off kind of quirky little film. It's not meant to be, you know, we're going to next see Joaquin Phoenix and, and Robert Pattinson facing off or anything. It's it's not like that. It's a, it's a very, very, very different kind of movie. It's, it's just a Joker origin story by people who I don't think have adhered very much to the Joker's existing origin stories. I think it's going to be fascinating to watch. Yeah, I think it's a standalone movie that's just doing what it wants to do and it doesn't want to be part of a bigger Batman universe. It just wants to tell its own story and I think that's going to be very interesting. Yeah, agree. Totally agree. And Dave, uh, you hinted that we'll talk about what's happening on our next episode, so I think I can exclusively reveal to the listeners that uh, we're doing our next annual deep dive on a doctor, and rather than getting people to to cast votes across all the doctors we haven't done, because who have we done? We've done Davo. Well, we did we did Davo two years ago, and we did yep. Hartnell one year ago. So that's why we decided we're due to do another one. That's right, and we've narrowed it down to four doctors. We'd particularly like to talk about it, but the final decision is up to you, dear listener. Uh, we're hoping to do one on either the third doctor 
the seventh doctor the ninth doctor or the tenth doctor so there's a couple of classic doctors there a couple of new who doctors there why don't you write into us hello at the dwshow.net tweet us at the dw show or uh, reach out to us on facebook uh facebook forward slash the dw show and let us know whether you'd prefer us to talk about the third doctor the seventh doctor the ninth doctor or the tenth doctor your vote does count absolutely we, we've picked four doctors that we think uh we haven't spoken too much about we haven't done a we haven't done an in-depth look at one of their seasons for example but also ones that i think we both feel that we could talk about we have stuff to say about so i always like it when we leave a decision up to the listeners and i'm i'm looking forward to finding out which one we're going to talk about yeah i'd be wrapped to talk about any of these four guys that's for sure so please do let us know. Please uh, have a look, particularly on our Twitter feed. Will we put a poll up on Twitter, Rob? I think we can do that. Okay, well, so we'll do that. But even if you uh, uh, vote via other means, we will add it all together. But look on our Twitter feed for, for a poll about that. But until then, I, look, I've, I've said all I have to say other than I've been Dave. And I've been Rob. And we'll speak again soon. See you next time. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.